I'm particularly interested in talking to you this evening about one of the seven ministries of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. There are seven ministries of the Spirit of God that relate to the believer. There are three ministries of the Holy Spirit that relate to the unbeliever. As far as the unsaved world is concerned, God today, through the Holy Spirit, is exercising, first of all, a reproving ministry. The Lord Jesus said when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. In other words, God's ministry through the Holy Spirit to the unsaved today is a ministry of convicting men and women of the nature of sin, of the need for righteousness, and of the nearness of judgment. That's his reproving ministry. He also has a regenerating ministry. The Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's his regenerating ministry. It's the ministry that takes place when a person accepts Christ the Savior, and he's born again, in the language of Peter, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God. He has a reproving ministry, he has a regenerating ministry, and he has a restraining ministry. Paul, writing to the Thessalonian Christians, told them that in the last days that God would allow the evil one to produce upon this world, upon this planet Earth, a lawless one who would head up the spirit of lawlessness that is so vacant in the heart of every human being. But until that day comes, the Holy Spirit is present, and he hinders. And, and Paul told the Thessalonians that he who hinders will hinder until he be taken out of the way. It's his restraining ministry. And he holds back the forces of wickedness. And again and again and again in the history of the earth, since Pentecost, it has looked as if the flood time of wickedness simply has to inundate the earth. But what has happened is God has come along by the Holy Spirit and sent a revival. And he's changed the whole course of history. It's happened not once nor twice, but hundreds upon hundreds of times in the last 2,000 years. It's the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit. When the church is called home, that restraining ministry will cease. And God in his sovereignty will allow evil men and seducers to wax worse at worse and precipitate upon this planet the conditions that are described in the Apocalypse. So the Holy Spirit today is exercising a threefold ministry towards the unsaved world. He's exercising a sevenfold ministry towards the believer. Obviously, we have not the time to discuss all seven of those ministries. I particularly want to draw your attention to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I want to focus on this particular ministry because 
of the prevailing ignorance amongst the Lord's people of what the Bible has to say about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what it is and what it does. There are only seven direct references to the baptism of the Spirit in the New Testament. And if we want to know what the Holy Spirit has to say about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then we have to restrict ourselves to these seven references. Anything else we import into this teaching is purely of human imagination. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 8, in Luke chapter 3 and verse 16, and in John chapter 1 and verse 26, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, we have a prophetic reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. On each of these four occurrences of the expression, you'll notice that the speaker is John the Baptist. He's heralding the coming of the Lord Jesus. And he's telling them that there's coming one who will baptize them with the Holy Ghost. The first four references then to the baptism of the Holy Spirit are prophetic. They are found in the ministry of John the Baptist and they are preparing the Jewish people for the fact that the Messiah who comes is one day going to baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. The fifth reference to the baptism of the Spirit is found in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5. This reference is also prophetic. The speaker this time is the Lord Jesus himself. He's been to Calvary. He's been down into the dark regions beyond the grave. He has risen victorious all the tomb. He's been lingering on this planet for about 40 days, appearing now here and now there, showing himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, as Luke puts it. And now he's going home. He's taking that little band of believers with him from the upper room, down across the Kedron Valley, past the Garden of Gethsemane, on up the slopes of Olivet, until he reaches the brow of the hill. And as he goes, he's talking with the hand of believers. He's talking about the coming kingdom. And they want to know if the Lord's going to inaugurate that kingdom right away. He says, it's not for you to know the time and the season which the Father has faith in his own power. But he says, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And he says, ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Actually, it was just ten days. The fifth reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, like the first four, is prophetic. 
Only this time, it's pinpointed for us, not many days hence. So historically we know that the baptism of the Holy Spirit took place upon the day of Pentecost. In fact, there's a very significant expression that Luke uses in describing the day of Pentecost. He says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Now you know the day of Pentecost had come many, many times in Hebrew history. In fact, it came every year. Every year the Jews celebrated a feast that was known as the Feast of Pentecost. And the ritual that they performed upon that feast was a very significant ritual. And if you want an interesting study, go back and read for yourself what the Jews did on the day of Pentecost. And you'll see that they were in symbolic form, setting forth in a prophetic way exactly what happened in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. And so the day of Pentecost was the day in which the baptism of the Holy Spirit took place, so far as the Jewish people were concerned. Ten days after the Lord went home to heaven, the Holy Spirit came down, and God opened a new chapter in his dealings with the sons of men, and the Holy Spirit took up a brand new relationship towards the people of God, one he had never adopted in all the ages of the Old Testament, something absolutely new, something unique in the mind and heart and thinking of God for his people. The next reference to the baptism of the Spirit is found in Acts chapter 11 and verse 16. And here the reference is not prophetic, it's historical. We have five prophetical references. Now we have an historical reference to the baptism of the Spirit. The occasion was that remarkable occasion when Simon Peter, much against his own will, rather reluctantly having to be persuaded by God in a very significant way, at last, taking a few Jews along with him, went for the first time into a Gentile home. And there in that Gentile home, in a Gentile city of Caesarea, in the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, God opened the door of the church to the Gentiles. And a few Gentile men and women believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and were saved. And what happened in the upper room at Pentecost? was repeated in a smaller way in the home of the Gentile Cornelius. When Je Peter got back to Jerusalem, the brethren put him on the carpet. And they began to take him to task for his, his waywardness in going into the house of a Gentile, of all things. And Peter began to explain to them what had happened and why he had gone. And he said that they had been baptized with the Holy Ghost. And he said the same thing that happened to us happened to them. But it was a historic reference. 
And he was referring to something that had happened just a few days before, and he is saying that they, these Gentiles, were baptized by the Holy Spirit the same as we were. In other words, God in his sovereignty had broken down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, and he had made one new man, the church. Later on, Paul picks this up, and he discusses it at length in his Ephesian letter, where he speaks of the breaking down of the middle wall of partition. Doctrinally, that's what happened. It happened historically in the house of Cornelius, and Peter refers to it as a historical fact when he reported back to the church in Jerusalem. From then on, the church, which up to this point had been composed almost entirely of Jews and the sprinkling of Samaritans, was now to include Gentiles. And before long, the Gentiles would far outnumber the Jews in the church. And Jerusalem would become a mere suburb in God's international affairs. By and by the great cities of Antioch and Ephesus and Corinth and Athens and Rome would completely overshadow Jerusalem. And the Jews would become a mere handful comparatively compared with the Gentiles in this new body that God had created out of Jew and Gentile, one new man. There is only one other reference to the baptism of the Spirit in the New Testament. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have not a prophetical reference to the baptism of the Spirit, and not an historical reference, but a doctrinal reference. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian Christians told them that by one spirit are your A-L-L all baptized and into one spirit into one body. By one spirit are your baptized into one body. And that was all of the spiritual ones and the carnal ones. Those who are living for God and those who are in a backslidden condition. Those who have spoken in tongues and those who never would and never could. A-L-L by one spirit are all baptized into one body. And my friend, that's all the New Testament has to say about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's all it has to say. You will search the New Testament epistles in vain for any reference to a baptism of the Holy Spirit for a select few that enables them to speak in tongues. It simply is not found in the New Testament. It isn't there. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, in other words, is that operation of the Holy Spirit 
It takes an individual member, an individual believer in the Lord Jesus, and makes him a member of the mystical body of Christ. And that's all the baptism of the Spirit is. It's a marvelous ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's wrong for any Christian to ask God to baptize him with the Holy Spirit. That's an insult to God. You see, if you have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. You don't belong to the mystical body of Christ. What you need to do is pray that you might get saved. And if you are saved, then bless your heart, you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the mystical body. And it's, it doesn't make any sense to ask God to give you something he's already given you. By one Spirit are you all baptized into one body. Do you know there are three bodies mentioned in the New Testament in connection with the Lord Jesus. There is, of course, what we could call his material body. That body that was conceived of the Holy Ghost in the virgin's womb. Referred to as that holy thing. That holy thing. The body in which he lived on this earth for 33 and a half years. First of all, as a little boy, a tiny baby, then a little boy, then a teenager, then a young man in shirt sleeves, laboring at a carpenter's bench, and then as an itinerant preacher for three and a half years, traveling here and there, doing such wonderful work, saying such amazing things. The body in which at last he was nailed to Calvary's cross, bearing our sins in that same body on the tree. That body was so marred more than any man, more than the sons of men. Rent and torn and stabbed and pierced, taken down at last by loving tender hands when all life had fled and laid away in Joseph's new tomb. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that God had a Joseph for the Lord's birth, and he had a Joseph for his death. Laid away in Joseph's tomb. The body in which he arose the third day, attested to by, by, by Thomas when challenged to put his finger into the print of the nails and to come and put his hand into the rent side. The body in which at last he went into heaven, in which body at this moment he is sat down at the right hand of God, the most amazing mystery in the entire universe that there's a man in heaven sat down on the throne of God, the man Christ Jesus bearing in his body the marks of Calvary, the only marks of sin that will ever be in heaven. And those holy hands of his upraised that today in that body he is interceding as our great high priest. 
the body in which one day he's coming again. There is his material body. Then there is his memorial body. Every time we spread the table on the Lord's day, we put upon the table that which speaks to us of the Lord's body, his memorial body. Holy bread, holy wine, yet to taste the solemn sign of the heavenly and divine. We, of course, do not make the mistakes that millions in Christendom make who believe that when the priest pronounces five Latin words over that piece of bread, that wafer, it ceases to be a wafer and becomes instead, by the dogma of transubstantiation, the body and blood and soul and divinity of the great eternal God. And they take that consecrated wafer which has ceased, according to their theology, to be a piece of bread, but has become the body and blood and soul and divinity of the Lord Jesus, and they place it in a little receptacle they call the tabernacle. And they worship it. They pray to it. Father Chinnicky, who was for 25 years a priest of that system, tells of the great agony of souls that came to him on one occasion when a fellow priest came to him and told how a rat had stolen the consecrated waste, the body and blood and soul and divinity of the Lord Jesus and had hauled it off down into some dark hole to eat. How the human mind can entertain such dark superstitions can only be explained by the deadly hatred that the evil one has toward everything that's pure and holy and good. But we do have his memorial body. It's not his actual body. When Martin Luther was confronted by his great opponent in that religious system, and they insisted on a literal interpretation of this is my body, he said, what are you going to do with this scripture? I am the door. It's only his memorial body, bless God, for the way in which it speaks to our heart. Of a body broken for us upon a cross of shame. And how the cup speaks to us of blood poured out at such infinite cost for our sins. On Calvary's blood-stained hill. And so we have, you see, his material body, and we have his memorial body. But we also have what theologians call his mystical body. I want you to follow me here very carefully, because this has to do with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is intended to bring into being the, the mystical body of Christ. When we say that the body is mystical, we do not mean that it is mythical. 
We mean that it is a mystery. That we shall never fully comprehend or understand the amazing fact that God has taken an individual believer like you and me and made him a member of the body of Christ the church in such a way that we are absolutely one with him in the truest and most real and most intimate sense as much as my head is a part of my body and my hands and my feet are parts of my body. We are thus united with the Lord Jesus in one body. It's a mystery. But it's not a myth. Saul of Tarsus learned the truth of the mystical body the very moment he was saved. He had given himself unsparingly as the chief agent of the Sanhedrin to stamping out the cult of Christianity. He considered Jesus of Nazareth to be a blasphemer and a heretic. And he considered the teachings of Christianity to be blasphemous and a perpetual insult to the Jewish faith. And he was harnessing all his intellectual powers and all the tremendous force of his character to stamping out this particular heresy that had sprung up amongst his people. He was on his way to Damascus. He had letters in his pocket authorizing him to, to arrest any Christians in Damascus and bring them back down to Jerusalem for summary trial. When he was confronted with the risen Christ. And the voice from heaven that he heard said, Saul, Saul. It didn't say, why do you persecute that? It said, why do you persecute me? And in that moment, Saul of Tarsus learned the truth of the mystical body of Christ, that for him to put his hand upon a Christian was for him actually to put his hand upon the Christ. That is the mystical body. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that takes an individual believer in the Lord Jesus and makes him a member of that mystical body. Apart from the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you can never belong to that mystical body. And if you don't belong to the mystical body, you're not saved. And if you are saved, then you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into that mystical body. It is necessary that we state these truths and state these doctrines because there are many today who are being led into all kinds 
of extreme movements. What they are looking for, actually, is a shortcut to spirituality. And they feel that by having some ecstatic experience, that somehow or other they have automatically become holy. Nothing could be really further from the truth. God's way to holy living is not an ecstatic experience. Subjective, emotional, and dubious. And unscriptural. God's way to holy living is the way of the cross. Knowing this, said Paul, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. That's God's way of holiness. It's the way of death, not the way of an ecstatic experience. It's a painful way. It's a slow way. There is no such thing as instant holiness. The saints of God in all ages have found that the path of holiness is a path of constant battle against principalities and powers, against the rulers of this world's darkness, and against wicked spirits in high places. They have found it a constant struggle day after day with the enemy within, with the flesh, which dies hard. Don't be led astray. You read the New Testament epistles and you will find that the first half of all the New Testament epistles has to do with what you should believe. And the second half has to do with how you should behave. And God doesn't reverse that order. If a man will not tolerate sound doctrine, it won't be long before he'll be off into something else. I know nowadays we think doctrine is dull and dry and uninteresting. It ought not to be. We're dealing with the most thrilling topics under the wide canopy of heaven. Things that the very angels desire to look into. But if we don't get our doctrine straight, then we're going to be led off into all kinds of bypass. Many of them meaningless. Some of them positively harmful and some of them downright heretical. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Seven references. Five of them prophetical pointing to the day of Pentecost. One of them historical joining the Gentiles to the church that was brought into being on the day of Pentecost and making one new man. The church. 
one of them doctrinal, telling us that by the ministry of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we become members of the body of Christ. If that isn't a big enough thrill for a believer, then what you're after is some kind of false sensation. May the Lord help us to keep our doctrine straight, and then our doings will be straight as well. Shall we pray? Now, Lord, we thank thee that you have spoken with great clarity on this subject. Help us not to be wise above what's written. Help us not to dilute what you've written. Help us, Lord, we pray, not to add to what you've written. Help us not to take something that belongs to another day and another age and another people and crave it as something that we want today. Oh, Lord, you want us to be holy. You want us to live victorious lives. What we need today is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Grant, Lord, we pray that we may learn what it is to give our bodies to thy Holy Spirit to be filled, to be cleansed, to be filled. And that is a day-by-day experience, seeking to walk in the light of the knowledge of the glory of God as we see it in the face of Jesus Christ. Thou hast said that the servant is not greater than his master. Grant, Lord, we pray that we might humbly and quietly tread the same path that he trod through life. A life filled with the Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.